bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, Paul Tudor Jones, the billionaire hedge fund manager and Robin Hood philanthropist, diagnosing the impact of rising interest rates. You got to think of interest rates a bit like chemo, chemotherapy. Chemo right. is poison. And the queasiness of the debt ceiling dance. I think you'll have some kind of indigestion along the way. And Merger Monday in sports betting, a brouhaha brewing at Twitter over its new CEO, and Vice, a digital upstart once worth billions, files for bankruptcy. Remember when Vice was the future? Or BuzzFeed. That was the fundamental problem. Getting these kind of crazy valuations, raising enormous amount of money, and then trying to spend it like a drunken sailor. Plus, in D.C., the debt ceiling clock is ticking 17 days till default. I think he can become the Joe Biden of old, the negotiator. He doesn't have to give much. It's Monday, May 15th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew? Uh, Thanks, Becky. Let's uh, bring you up to date now on the latest on the debt ceiling standoff in Washington. President Biden, uh, Speaker McCarthy and other congressional leaders, they're tentatively planning to meet tomorrow for negotiations. But reports say the meeting isn't finalized and could change. The president spent time yesterday biking in Delaware, answered several questions and made this comment about the debt ceiling talks with Republicans. I really think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it. The president saying it is never good to characterize the negotiation in the middle of negotiation, but he said that his remarks, uh, or that he, well, his remarks were, but he also remains optimistic. That's kind of the messaging coming from both sides, both sides. at this point, but we'll see. Um, what else do you want to say? A lot that has to get lifted. You see if this I'll tell you what we, comes tomorrow. I'll tell you what we want to see. So you know where all the action is. Vic's calls right. to 50, some of them. Wow. Strike price. It's at Versus 17. What, like 14, 17? Okay. What 17 is this coinciding right. with? The stupid debt ceiling talks. You remember last time? Uh, it was 2011, and there was a huge spike in, back then in the VIX. In the VIX as a result. And it came right back down, didn't it? It did, but she's going to make the, the case that, once again, it was like, you need the equity markets to tell Congress and the White what House to do. what and to do. And as long as they actually keep saying we're so, we're so optimistic and everything's just fine. You and won't the see the, is, the volatility rise. I don't know. Right? Maybe it does. Maybe underneath it does. So clearly she's you saying know, it does. A lot writing to see if this meeting actually happens. If they're watching, I'm talking about the White House, I think Biden can get, I don't think he needs, I don't know who he's listening to, that he has to stick to his guns with the, with the clean race. I think he can become the Joe Biden of old, the negotiator. If he, if it just, and he doesn't have to give much. COVID uh, relief, maybe. A couple of other things in there. indicated that's on the table. Yeah. Good. Do it. Get it done. And he's like, not only did I do all this other stuff, but I got to keep my IRA. I did not as, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. I got to keep that. I showed that I'm a deal maker. We averted a crisis. Now let's move on. Can we do that? Let's Elections see coming do, let's up. Let's see if he does. Okay. In deal news. And then, and then when he does, if he gets praised for it. Well, I'm not going to do that, but... Uh, <laughs> See, this, 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 that's, that's the point. Right. That is the point. So he's got nothing to lose. And Fanatics has agreed to acquire the U.S. operations of sports betting app PointsBet. 
That deal is worth about $150 million in cash. Sources tell CNBC that Fanatics expects to have access to the majority of states where PointsBets operates by the start of the NFL season this fall, which obviously an important time for any online gambling, too. PointsBets shares are traded in Australia. That stock tumbled overnight. The company is expected to hold a shareholder vote on the deal coming up in June, but that stock, check it out, down by about 21%. Our parent company, NBC Universal, will get proceeds from its previous deal with PointsBet and will no longer have an equity stake. NBC Universal acquired a 4.9% stake in PointsBet back in 2020. Fanatics owns a large e-commerce business, a sports trading card business, and has been building out its sports betting division. And that's probably a big reason Michael Rubin had to get yep. rid of his franchises, too. If you're looking to do what's best for the I business. Didn't, I didn't know if you were going to bring that up or not. Why? You're going to talk about the 76ers? Is that where you want to go? I don't know if I want to go there. My daughter was down there for a friend of hers graduation. She was wearing all her 76ers gear. Um, Jason Tatum, I think, felt like maybe he had a good um, argument for the MVP. Yeah. You know, Embiid yeah. won the M MVP. Did you see Tatum last night? No, I didn't see. 50 highest points ever, most points ever wow. in a seventh game. Over 50, 52, 53. And both Harden and Embiid had not so great games. The defense, the Celtics defense was was ap was unbelievable. Horford and, and these other gentlemen, but uh, Seventy Sixers shut them down in the Garden <laughs> earlier. They yeah, did a but really nice job. The the Seventy Sixers keep getting to this point and can't get over. And they had and they've changed people. They've changed they, people. You know, Harden's there now, but Embiid. They built the team run, and he's MVP. But once again, thwarted. But I will tell you what a classy guy uh, talking to Tatum after the. Uh, which would have been hard uh, to, to, uh, to be really gracious as, as with the beatdown. They even took, you know, the good players out at the end of... Uh... So here we go. From here on out, it's going to be a good... Uh, the four teams, we know who they are, and it, it could end up Celtics-Lakers. Wow. Remember those days. Of those old. days yeah. old. Incoming uh, Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino tweeting yes Saturday for the first time since being named to the job. She said that she's committed to the future of the platform and said... The user feedback is vital to that future. Yacarino, of course, joining Twitter from her job as the head of global advertising right here uh, from our parent company, NBC Universal, and also uh, tweeted yesterday about Mother's Day, by the way, a belated happy Mother's Day to all the superwomen, uh, both at the table here, to my wife and family and everybody in the audience. Thank you very much. Did you, have a, good, did you have a good Mother's Day? I did. I had a wonderful one. So, uh, but, but by the way, Twitter, so there's a whole brouhaha brewing on Twitter about this Linda Yaccarino move and whether she's, I mean, can I just say, I know Linda Yaccarino. I know, I, and, I know. And I just disagree vehemently with the Twitterati who seem to think that she is, and look, maybe because I've been to Davos before, I don't think that she's part of some kind of weird, uh, crazy, cr crazy group, but uh, there are people in, in Twitterland who seem to be quite upset about that part of her background, which makes they no will, sense to me. They, they're wrong. And they, it, that group that you're talking about, and I'm not a member of any group, but they will not be. The group you're talking about that are wondering and disappointed, they will not be disappointed. But can I say, because she's, Linda she's, Yaccarino she's is one not of a what kind, she appears and, to, yeah. and the truth is, she's a great operator, right? and she's great at creating, great at creating revenue, and the advertising community loves her. Yeah, and that difference. is the entire point. Which, and if you have Elon on one side working on the technology piece of it and 
you know, the, the engineering side, right. and then you have her as the sort of operator dealing with the advertising side and the revenue side. That's, that's uh, exactly the, what he needs. Right, and, and the things that have uh, sort of ostracized Elon from people that previously loved him, that contingent, you know, the one we're talking about, the woke contingent, I guarantee you Elon and Linda have talked about that, and she, they are simpatico on how he feels about free speech, but you know what? how they're he feels about all those things. But I'll tell you, the, they're simpatico, but the other pieces that Linda, I think, actually has managed to straddle the other side of that world and is considered... She had to. She was no, at NBC. <laughs> yes, but within the context of Twitter, what does she care about? She cares about selling advertising. If right. you care about selling advertising, you care about brand safety and all this type, kind of stuff. Right. And the question so is, all how do you... And I think she's going to be able to thread the needle. I, I do. I'm, act, I'm long Linda Yaccarino. Uh -huh. I think she's going to be able to f help him figure this out. Just saying. It was a, but but it was a, we know her. I, I've, I've whispered to her at parties. That's all I'm saying. We've, like, whispered to each other at parties because we don't want, you know. Well, you, you keep that to yourself. You don't <laughs> whispering. You, you well, I'm not saying what we whispered about, but I'm just saying that she is not what, she, what these people are making her out to be. <laughs> Meantime, Vice Media officially filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, the move part of a plan to engineer a sale to a group of lenders. Those include the company's biggest creditor, Fortress Investment Group. It's been a long, sad story about Vice. Remember when Vice was the future? Or BuzzFeed. Remember when all of them were. Yeah. It, but it's, again, it's like streaming. Nah, no streaming, uh, but no cable either. And, you know, legacy media, nah, it's not that, but no new media either. So where is all of it? If it's obviously not a zero sum. And well, they're the making vice, money and there's, there's the, the difference. The vice problem was a over, over, um, over raising. In fact, they just raised too much money and spent too not much. Not the money. only one, though. How many of these, you know, these very But I think there were a bunch of them that that was, that was the fundamental problem. It was getting these kind of crazy valuations raising enormous amount of money, and then trying to spend it like a it, drunken right. sailor. I don't know. Well, and for a while it's, it's it was just working. just finding a way to be profitable. That's and for a while it was working because there was sort of this special sauce uh, thing going on. Yeah, but it's finding a way And to the be question profitable. was whether that was like a repeatable process. Of all the new things like Vice, what's the most successful? Is there a really uber successful? You know, I don't know if it's uber successful, but Which it's one? not failing. Which one? I, I admire what the Vox people have done, okay. and actually the Politico people. Axios, by the way, of course, was sold off. I don't right. think of Politico being in the same. It's not in the same. No, that's what I mean, but it got, of it got a big online, valuation. Yeah, just In terms of media company that's emerged in the last, right. call it decade or more now. It's probably more, probably more than that now. Insider? I don't know. Well, Insider, of course. Yeah, but that went to Axel Springer. But, but Axel Springer is a great example of something that's actually sort of transformed itself. Cheese will be next. Coming up, the legendary trader Paul Tudor Jones on New York's biggest anti-poverty push and what he's watching from Washington and the possibility of the U.S. defaulting on its $30 billion plus debt. That's what this debt ceiling is going to be. It's going to be kabuki theater, little throw up. And the real question is, where are we going to be a month from now? Keep listening. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. 
The Robin Hood Foundation is celebrating 35 years of fighting poverty in New York City. The charity, founded by Paul Tudor Jones and five fellow hedge fund managers in the late 1980s, holds its annual benefit this evening. In those 35 years, the foundation has invested around $3 billion across poverty solutions, tackling issues like housing, childcare, education, and much more. Our Andrew Ross Sorkin joined Paul Tudor Jones on site at the Javits Center in Manhattan, the location of the annual benefit, for a conversation about markets, artificial intelligence, when politics collide with policy, and the close eye that investors have on the Federal Reserve. The central bank has hiked interest rates 10 times since March 2022 in an effort to tamp down inflation that about a year ago was running at its hottest levels in decades. The new president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, Austin Goolsby, spoke to Squawk Box this morning about the fine line the Fed is treading and whether those hikes are coming to a pause. The prudence and patience is you got to you got to look through the waggles. You know that it, at moments like this, you don't want to land the plane nose down. And we've raised the rates 500 basis points over a year. And a lot of the impact of that is still in the pipeline. And that is where we start with Paul Tudor Jones today in an exclusive interview. Here's Andrew. Nice to see you, sir. It's great to see you, Andrew. Um, I want to talk about Robin Hood, and we're going to get there in a moment. But I actually want you to react a a little bit to this Austin Goolsby interview and some of his comments. I'm curious where you think uh, interest rates will go, should be. What do you think? I think they've done hiking. I'm so glad I don't have his job because listening to these guys try to not say what they really want to say and what they really think. What do you think he really wants to say? He wants to say we're done, we've gone too far, and enough's enough. That's that's what he wants to say. He just can't say that because he's new on on the board and he has to follow the chairman. But that's what he wants to say. And what do you want to say if you're on that board? I think he's right. I think they're done. You think they are done? Oh, definitely. I think they're done. I mean, they could probably declare victory now because if you look at CPI, it's been declining 12 straight months, 12 straight months. That's never happened before in history. So there's a strong downward arc to inflation at the moment. Two-year break-evens are under 2%. Clearly, they have to be governed by trailing 12-month inflation. But if we get to the here and now, you can see that inflation to a great extent has been wrung out of the market. Now, does that mean that we're getting ready to imminently cut? No. But you got to think of interest rates a bit like chemo. So chemo, chemotherapy, chemo right. is poison. Interest rates with the kind of amount of sector-wide debt that we have between private consumer and the government, we're probably at levels where we've typically hit a recession in the past because of the interest tax on the economy. So. We're at a level right. that historically has really slowed the economy and historically has kicked off a recession. I think it's just a question of waiting for that tax on the economy to work its way Mistake through. Mistake then for them to raise interest rates? Would it have Jim? been a jump ball for me. I would have been 50-50 on the last one. I could have been talked out of it. I would have been reluctant to do it. The only reason why I probably would maybe have gone along with it is because I think equity prices are going to get, I think they're going to continue to go up this right. year. And the financial cycle drives so much of the business cycle. 
Okay. So, but let me just pick yeah. up on what you just said. You just yeah. said you think equity prices are going to go up this year. Oh, yeah. So you think they're going to end higher than where we are right now? Oh, yeah. Okay, real economy is going to be... Could, could, could go into recession in the third or fourth quarter. And when I say we're going to be higher, I'm not rampantly bullish because I think it'll be a slow grind. You just got, as we had, if I, if I go back to the, uh, the 06, 07, 08 episode, we stopped hiking in June of 06. And even though the economy was decelerating, the stock market ground higher for another year and change. And I look at the flow of funds situation, which is what I like to look at in 06, and I look at it now, and they're very similar. We've got a trillion dollars of buybacks. We have no IPOs, no calendar, no secondaries. Valuations are at 19, but nobody's rushing to offer. So clearly, something is going on internally in the stock market, and by that I mean from a flow standpoint, that's constructive. Uh, Let me ask you this. We had Stan Druckenmiller, uh, who uh, was on the air just last week, I think, and he made this comment that given the remarkable margins in corporate America today, he said it's possible that stocks don't basically move anywhere for 10 years. I think that's, I think we're in just a big, massive trading range. I think on that point, he's correct. We're he's, at, hold on. He, do you a think a multi-year trading range? Right. But if you had told me, if you'd asked me six months ago, I'd probably give you a different forecast on long-term inflation, and I'd give you a different forecast on the stock market. Okay, but you think that for ten years we might be in a trading range for the next ten years? Well, I think we're going to have a more bifurcated market than we've ever had over the course of the next five or ten years because I do think that the introduction of large language models, artificial intelligence, is going to create a productivity boom that we've only seen a few times in the last 75 years. So, just to be clear, if you think about the big productivity miracles that we've had since the war, you had one in the late 50s, which was really a delayed reaction to the infrastructure investment post-war in the early 50s. Then we had one in the 80s because of the introduction of the PC. Right. And then we had one in the 90s because of the introduction of the internet. Each of those three episodes were associated with productivity gains of somewhere between one and 3%. So figure, let's say that this large language model is gonna give us a productivity boom of one and a half percent over the next five years per year, which I think is possible. We've had the fastest adoption of them in history, right? So if that's the case, and I just go back and look historically what that's done during those productivity miracles, you've had the stock market on average kind of appreciate 15% per year. You've had inflation come down. This is literally a gift to the central bank. Uh, say 30 to 50 basis points, certainly in the early years. And you've had a PE expansion of somewhere between one and a half, two. So I think this one, there'll be some, I think this one will be more bifurcated than it was back in those other ones. But yes, that makes me think the tide is coming in for the stock market. So that's, that's a good thing for the stock market, except then you said, a trading range for, you, you said you agreed with Stan Druckenmiller, which would suggest the sort of Warren Buffett school of 
buy the S&P 500 and hold it would maybe not be what you would do. What I mean is we have different cycles that are going to be competing with each other in the short, intermediate, and long run. We have a long-term productivity boom that's going to come from LLMs that within the stock market, there'll AI, be a war. large language models. Right. right. AI, that within the stock market, they're going to be huge winners and huge losers. So he can be right and I can be right because there are going to be some big winners right. and big losers. Okay. Layer into this, though, the banking crisis that we're living through today right. and the debt ceiling debate. Uh, I'm going to need a model to figure all this out, right? So uh, the debt ceiling deba- debate reminds me, I just had my first granddaughter three weeks ago. Congratulations. And, and, it's, and I forgot, thank you very much, I forgot when you're holding that baby that after they've been feeding that they tend to do a little throw up all the time, right? <laughs> so I, I think that's what this, this debt ceiling is going to be. It's going to be kabuki theater, little throw up. And the real question is where are we going to be a month from now? A month from now, after it's resolved, then where two-year rates? My guess is they may, may be a little higher. There's risk premiums in everything. Risk premiums in gold, risk premium in stocks, risk premium in rate structures, because we're all terrified right. of, uh, of the debt ceiling. So if those are gone, stocks are probably a little higher, gold's probably a little lower, rates might be a touch higher, because those risk premiums will disappear. So you have, that's the very shortest term. So you buy on that if you think a deal gets done. I, 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 yeah, I think you'll have, uh, I think you'll have some kind of indigestion along the way, and yes, I'd buy that. Then we have, in a more intermediate basis, we have the financial cycle. The financial cycle, which is what we kind of look at internally, is the combination of the historical debt and asset valuation boom bust. Right. So if you think about Post-COVID, we had this massive increase in debt, massive increase in equity valuation. It creates this boom in the financial cycle. That's happened in 1990. That happened in 2000. That happened in 2008. Our financial cycle, the peak of total debt growth plus stock market valuation occurred in September of 2021. Historically, it's about a two-year lag when that really, really bites and you go into recession. That would be third quarter this year. Okay. There's a good chance, based on our most recent financial episodes, there's a really good chance that we're going to be on the verge of looking like or actually going into recession. recession. But you think then the stock market's higher because it's looking out 12 months after because I think, again, if I just think about this year and I think about 06, 07, 08, it doesn't mean that the stock market cannot go higher as the economy decelerates. If, if you just think about it, if that was the last, if that was the last uh, hike right. that we just had, the playbook's real simple. Six months from now, stocks are 10 percent higher. Six months from now, uh, interest rates are generally 50 to 70 basis points lower. There's a halcyon period post last hike right. where asset prices do okay. Commodities barely recover. 
the dollar kind of does nothing. I'd referenced this banking crisis that we're, we're in. I don't know if you think it's a crisis or something else. How does that factor in? And where do you think we are? I think that's one of the reasons why that was the last hike. I mean, this banking crisis, it, it, it's troubling to me because we just killed three big banks. And when I say we, I think bad monetary policy combined with bad fiscal policy created a situation that never had to happen. We knew in the fourth quarter of 2020, it was so obvious we were gonna have a vaccine, but we continued with quantitative easing for an entire year after that. Uh, and the whole time we're telling everyone rates are gonna stay low forever, inflation is not an issue, we're trying to get inflation above 2%. The banks, anyone that was listening right. to our Fed, Fed at that point in time was probably doing exactly what these banks did, extending maturities because they were being told that inflation didn't exist right. when it finally did come as transitory and rates were going to be low forever. I, I, we did not have to have all that overstimulus. And then all of a sudden we found out inflation wasn't transitory. We had to, they had right. to course correct a over-exaggeration of what they were doing in 2020 monetary policy. Okay, I got a different one for you. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. You came on our air yep. during the early part of the pandemic. I think it was trading at eight, $9,000 yep. a coin. Yep. And you said, I'm in. Yep. And I think you wrote it uh, all the way up to sixty-some-odd thousand dollars, yep. and we then wrote it back down to fifteen thousand dollars, and we're now sitting, I think, somewhere around twenty-seven thousand dollars. I've never sat on a horse that long, just just so you know. <laughs> um, so what's the? Uh, you're still on the horse, though. I, 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 from the beginning, I've always said I want to have a small allocation to it because it's a great tail event. It's the only thing that humans can't adjust the supply in. So I, I'm sticking with it. Uh, I'm gonna always stick with it as just a small diversification in my portfolio. What do I think right now? I, I liked it last December. I still think I, I mean. Would you buy more right now? Would I buy more? I, I would probably, I'm kind of, I look at it in gold and I think they've done so well recently because of the fact that we have had these great risk premiums. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder whether they may not be boring in the future. Right. So big, Bitcoin has a real problem because the United States, you have the entire regulatory apparatus against it. So it's just kind of yesterday's news. And if inflation's truly done a bit, if it's if right. that if that story's been played, then. You have to wonder, we were buying gold and Bitcoin for the inflation hedges. That game may be over. I would have, I would, in six months ago, before AI, before the possible productivity boost that we'll get right. for it, I would have saw, said a completely different story with regard right. to the inflationary future and with regard to all the inflation hedges. Okay, I got a different one for you. You okay. spend a lot of time thinking about ESG. Right. And we have this big fight going on in the state of Florida between Disney 
and DeSantis. Disney thinking that it's speaking out, using its First Amendment right on behalf of its workers, something that most of your polls right. historically have shown to be the thing that companies are supposed to do. Right. And yet on the other side, there's the political punishment that's coming along with that. And I think a lot of CEOs are looking at that and saying, I don't know if I'm supposed to speak out anymore. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. If, if I just think about what all our polling adjust capital says, the pocketbook issues are by far and away the most important issues for corporate America. Right. The pocketbook issues. Am I getting paid right. a fair and living wage? Once we get into the politics of a variety of issues, the importance of those issues fall dramatically down the scale. So uh, it's tragic to me that we would have one of the biggest employers, if not the biggest employer in Florida, and the governor in a fight. It's tragic. I would hope they would both stand down. Um, let's talk about tonight. Uh, you've been doing this now 35 years. This is quite something. There'll be 3,000 people that are going to pack this place. 4,000. 4,000. We're, we're over more than sold out. Um, a lot of folks from Wall Street and corporate America. What, what are you expecting to happen tonight? And also, given the economic environment, I mean, one of the things that's ha that happens every, every year, which is you raise millions upon millions of dollars. I mean, it's a spectacle, frankly, to see the numbers light up the screen. What, what are you anticipating happens this evening, especially given the economic environment? Well... Let me just say, first of all, tonight is going to be unlike any other night in our 35-year history. We've got some surprises. They're going to be absolutely spectacular. I think that people's desire to do good and to help and to believe in community uh, are just as strong as they are now as they were in our entire history. So I, I expect people to show up and to right. give. I just want to, and this is a spoiler alert for people who are coming tonight, I was previewing this video that we did on, uh, that we're going to show tonight on Association to Benefit Children run by this, the, you know, the U.S.'s Mother Teresa, Gretchen Buckenholz. And in the video, it shows this AIDS orphan from the 90s and how they tracked this AIDS orphans from the early 90s all the way to now and how he's turned into this incredibly wonderful, giving human being, father and teacher. And while I was watching us and they're going, oh my Lord, I had this visceral impact because I remember being at ABC in the early 90s, we were having our board meeting there and I remember Gretchen taking us into their maternity ward where all these AIDS babies were lying, were lying and crying, swaddled babies crying. And she said, we don't have enough people to hold them. They just want to be held. And so all of us took a baby. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, there's a really good chance that I held that. I either held Victor or his brother, Eric at that point in time. And at the time, we didn't know much about AIDS. We had no idea what it was. We thought we were just holding these doomed children, children of God, for some momentary respite or sucker. 
And I see that video and going, oh my Lord, they made it. He made it. He made it because of ABC. He made it because we've been supporting them forever. And it dawned on me, generational, generational continuity enables generational change. Well, Tudor Jones, I uh, want to thank you for your time this morning, your insights, and we wish you a lot of luck uh, this evening with uh, one of the most important causes uh, in New York. Thank you again. Appreciate thank you it. so much. You bet. And that is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And for the very best of our TV show, follow this podcast. Squawk Pod is available every day for free on all the big podcast platforms. Please check us out. And we will meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.